Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. Happy New Year. This is our first uh, Last Week in Texas for 2022. And we are back once again with uh, Michael Smith. Michael, welcome and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's good to be back, Wayne. Well, you've uh, started the, the year off in, in Waco already. So um, before we, we take you there, though, we're trying to go through the Eastern District and look at some of the rulings from the end of 2021 and then the fun things that are coming out so far this year. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of what I heard someone say at a pretrial with Judge uh, Albright in Waco yesterday. He came over and looked at me and said, you know, I feel like I'm being unfaithful to Judge Gilstrap being here. <laughs> so I said, I, I understand. But uh, so let's start with the Eastern District. We had a, a few interesting cases recently there. Um, last year, uh, there was a damages retrial in a trade secret misappropriation case in front of Judge Mazant up in uh, Sherman. And that was a case that had been tried in front of Judge Shell several years ago, went up to the appellate court and they uh, provided an advisory opinion, reversed it on some uh, damages issues uh, having to do with disgorgement and sent it back and said, retry the damages side of it. Uh, it is not fun being on the defense side on a retrial on damages. Uh, and this is the final order that came out of that where Judge Mazant entered findings and conclusions, which agreed with the jury's advisory findings in that case. On some of these issues, they're for the court, but the court can seat an advisory jury. And that's what he, he chose to do. And he followed what the, what the jury did in that case. So if, you, if you've got a case with trade secret misappropriation, disgorgement, damages issues, it's a good opinion to look to to see what are the factors and how do you uh, effectively present that at trial? I think this is, you're, you're right. This is a unique case to see damages separated from all of the other mudslinging and, and irrelevant damages issues that go with underlying liability. So um, for pure, if you're pure damages case, uh, I don't think you'll find one much better than this. Oh yeah, it's, it's yeah, there was a desperate need for some mudslinging in that case. Uh, it, 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 it's very difficult because the thing that made it unusual was the prior jury had found um, um, intentional misappropriation. So you had the jury in this case instructed that, well, it's either uh, gross negligence or willful or malicious. So you already had baked into what the new jury got the, the bad conduct uh, that the prior jury had found. So that, that made it a very interesting uh, case. But anyway, that's an interesting one to look at. Um, another thing we're finding out a little bit more about these days is mediation. And mediation in the age of COVID, it, every mediation is like a snowflake. It's different. Who has to show up is different. How it's handled is different. Uh, and we had a couple of uh, orders come out on a case uh, here that is interesting. The parties identified some issues before mediation. We're kind of back to in-person mediation, but what happened here is the two parties are over in different countries in Europe, and one of them ran into a travel restriction right before the mediation and said, uh, our guy needs to attend remotely, and the other party said, well, we want you to send some other people from uh, the UK, and Judge Gilstrap issued an opinion that said that, okay, the corporate rep can attend remotely, uh, but given the practicalities between 
the party and its owner, that owner needs to send an authorized representative as well, because the allegations are that um, they're the ones calling the shots. They need to send someone. Now, keep in mind, this mediation is after a jury trial. So Judge Gilstrap has already seen the interplay at trial with trial testimony from the owner, from the party, from so forth. So he understands the relationship. So he issues the order based on the practicalities uh, between the two parties. In, in these, I mean, the practicalities, did he make an official determination of what those are or just kind of allude to what the parties should, should already be doing? He just made the reference to the practicalities, uh, and the parties know what that means because they know uh, what he's referring to, but the order doesn't say it. But there's another shoe that dropped a couple of weeks later because after that order came out, uh, it turned out that the party was able to get an exemption to allow their representative to come to the United States to attend mediation. And they said, well, in light of this judge, now can our owner not have to send someone? And that was disputed. And Judge Gilstrap issued a second order that said, okay, you'll attend trial in person. And based on what you're telling me and based on the authorizations that have been provided, I'm now gonna hold that the representative of the owner doesn't need to attend as well. So, so again, it, it's a snowflake that keeps changing because as facts change, you can go back to the court and say, okay, in this situation, we think this person needs to come, but this person doesn't need to. And you get two rulings in this case out of the court based on those changing circumstances. So um, with respect to mediations, uh, I think you need to uh, be aware that um, there's no harm in going to the court and saying, here's kind of line the lineup that we think makes sense. And a lot of times you work that out with the other side ahead of time, it turns out. It's, it's a bad omen when you have to go through multiple rounds of motion practice to get the right people to a mediation. Well, it, it is. It's unfortunate. Uh, but I think these orders give kind of an, an example of here are some of the, uh, the factors that may come into play. So, Michael, one of my, my favorite mediations uh, up in Minnesota where the, everything's done by the magistrate judge. And they, in their order put in, you have to bring somebody that has the power to settle wouldn't entertain any disputes about that, but he did say that uh, if, if I don't like who's here, I'm gonna go change into my robe and we'll have a quick fact finding. Um, and then uh, there'll be a contempt finding for you failing to bring the person I ordered you to bring. And then we'll go back and mediate when you get the right people here. You know, we, we just, if there was any doubt, we just brought extra people. It was easier to pay for the plane fare. Wayne, that is not a hypothetical. I had exactly that happen in Plano with Magistrate Judge Bush, where he came in on his robe uh, in the courtroom and then adjourned us to separate sessions. And then when he decided that we had not brought the right person, he said, aha, see y'all back in the courtroom in five minutes, goes back in, sanctions us. And what was funny about it was the lawyer on the other side was my, he wasn't my partner at that time yet, Clyde Seidman. But Clyde jumps over the rail and grabs his co-counsel. When the judge looked at him and said, okay, what do you want for a sanction? Clyde grabs his person and tells him, just ask for the plane fare. Just ask for the plane fare. <laughs> because he realized we didn't want to blow things up over this. But, I've, but I love telling the story about how Judge Bush sanctioned us uh, at a mediation in his courtroom. Uh, it, it does kind of help get the right people there, though. Well, it's, it's a great point that 
these judges recognize that mediations are, are worthless if you don't have the right people there uh, to hear the mediator's story and hear the mediator uh, put pressure on people. So, uh, well, like and, 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 and COVID, I recall when I was out, uh, when I saw you at the, the Berkeley Stanford event uh, in December, uh, I talked to several mediators about what effect COVID was having on mediation, all these remote mediators. And some of them said it worked better remotely. Others said it didn't. But but I was very surprised to hear some say what my experience has been, which is that I would have assumed that if you don't have people in the room, it's just not going to work. But that actually hasn't been people's experience. We've had a lot of good mediations uh, remote over the last couple of years. And whether they were effective or not didn't seem to be driven by whether it was remote or not. Uh, that, that surprised me very much. Well, if we, we stay in the Eastern District, there was a, a protective order denial that was pretty interesting. Well, there was. This was a case where the plaintiff had several cases uh, involving multiple defendants, uh, including um, uh, the defendants at issue here. And the plaintiff had tried serving the, the overseas defendant several different ways. One of the ways had stuck in one of the other cases, but these defendants in a different case said, well, 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 wait, let's not go forward with discovery until we're served pursuant to what was worked out in the other case. And Judge Gilstrap denied the motion for two reasons. First of all, he noted that the defendants had agreed that we'll go forward with a case after, it's after the service issues are resolved in another case. And secondly, there has been an Eastern District rule for 30 years that the pendency of a motion to dismiss doesn't stop discovery from going forward absent court order. So he said, based on those two things, discovery is going to go forward. Um, we're not gonna hold things up based on a service of process issue under the facts uh, of the case. So that's something that if, if you're representing a defendant that you don't, that you've got a service fight over, you might want to look at that before you start arguing about engaging in, in initial discovery. Well, as we, we move through, it looks like the, the next set of interesting cases are in the, the Western District. And one of the, the more interesting one here is the, the Fresh Hub sanctions order. Well, it, it, it was. And this order got a lot of, uh, or this ruling got a lot of uh, national attention back when the hearing occurred on it. Uh, what happened here was the plaintiff lost uh, uh, a trial uh, against Amazon in Judge Albright's court in Waco. They found the jury found that the claims were valid, but none were infringed. So the plaintiff files a motion for judgment as a matter of law. Judge Albright resolves those motions in an order and gets to this issue where the plaintiff is saying uh, we need a new trial because the reason the jury did what they did is because uh, Amazon was presenting stereotypes of greedy Jewish executives at an Israeli company. The plaintiff was an Israeli company. Uh, and, and that was their theme at trial. Uh, specifically, uh, they said they, that the defendant referred to Fresh Up as an Israeli company. It, it emphasized irrelevant facts about its lack of profitability and, and made explicit reference to Israeli shekels as opposed to dollars. Judge Albright was highly, highly offended by this. And, and it wasn't just, he said, first of all, what you're saying happened at trial was not how it happened. 
the defendant was responding to specific facts. And the reason why the reference was referred to uh, shekels was to make clear to the jury the difference whether uh, calculations that were being presented by experts were in dollar numbers were in shekel numbers. Um, more importantly, and here we get into the procedural side of it, the court said you didn't object at trial. You make these, these inflammatory uh, accusations in a motion for new trial, but you're now saying that throughout trial, defendants blew the J Jewish stereotype dog whistle at every opportunity to unfairly bias the jury, but there was never an objection during trial. Now, we all know you can't raise mixed conduct objections for the first time in a motion uh, to new trial, but I think the thing that the plaintiff didn't see coming here was that the judge was going to take it personally that you claimed that this was happening throughout the trial because he says if that was the case, then I was allowing this throughout the trial. And he said, I didn't allow this because there was never any racist or anti-Semitic uh, uh, comments. Uh, he, he said, this is an attack on the integrity of the court. It's an attack on the reputation of defendant's counsel. I mean, the defendant's counsel that was being attacked was herself Jewish. So it, very uh, offensive um, accusations here. So the judge concluded, you've, you've breached your, your duty to the court. He cited a California federal judge's order just a few months earlier uh, saying that uh, you need to take into account the improper conduct of these lawyers. So he required everybody to uh, who signed Freshub's motion for new trial to attend uh, CLE on, on ethics uh, as a result. Very, very strong language from the court on this. And that, one of the things I'd, I'd point out is I look at the opinion that struck me is the judge gave, gave a full hearing on the matter. I mean, looked at the allegations, took it seriously, and went through them one by one to identify whether, you know, why those statements were made. So this wasn't just a, a knee-jerk reaction by the court to, you know, being called out. This seems to be a, a really, really well thought out opinion uh, based on the objections the other side raised at not a trial, but in their, in their briefing. Oh, it, it, it was. It was very detailed. You, you saw in the legal media what he said at the hearing, but in the order, he goes through, here's what the actual statements were. Here's the objections that were not made. Here, here was the context of everything. I mean, I, I really appreciate the court protecting the reputations of the lawyers that were being accused in this way and pointing out at every step how this claim is improper. It's factually unsupported. It wasn't objected to at trial. And, and uh, uh, it, it, it's a good lesson, I think, in, okay, you lost a trial. You're not happy you lost a trial, but you can actually make it worse now. Uh, I don't know. I have not seen a 285 order come out of this. I was a little surprised that there were not monetary sanctions but it's possible that those may come up in the context of a 285 because th these are pretty exceptional uh, allegations given the lack of uh, factual support. So we may not have seen the final order on this subject. Well, and I, the other thing I took away from this is that it's a strong warning to anybody that's tempted to use any kind of racist conduct. The court's gonna look at every statement one by one to, to determine whether you should be sanctioned. So 
Uh, yeah. I, I, I look at it from that other side. It's, a, it's just a really strong warning. Don't if you, do it. If you think that is happening at trial and there, and I've, I've seen other cases where there have been allegations that this happened at trial and the, and the court agreed. Uh, if you see it happening in trial, you can't wait till after trial to raise it. You have to raise it at trial and and look for the judge's uh, assistance there. You can't wait till after trial and then throw it in and as maybe a Hail Mary, hoping that you'll get a new trial out of it because they absolutely did not get a new trial out of it. And uh, Judge Albright added his voice to the Northern District of California judge that pointed out the lawyers by name and, and, and said that what they did was improper. So Michael, a question for you. If, if you're sitting there in trial and you think a, a statement like that has been made by the other side, what's the right way to get that in front of the, the judge or at least in front of Judge Albright? How do you raise that um, objection gently? I, based on, well, what, I, what I'm gonna say is based on what I heard him say yesterday, I think what he would want you to do is ask to approach the bench and then make your record up there. Say, for example, the other side makes a reference to um, counsel. The other side made a reference, go up there and say, here's the statement that was made. I think the inference they're trying to get before the jury is an improper one that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's asking the jury to uh, uh, indulge a bias against this party based on race, based on religion, based on whatever. And I think it's inappropriate. And I think counsel needs to be cautioned. And then to the extent that it was something that, that um, might be appropriate to provide a uh, instruction to the jury at that point, um, you might do, you might do it there. Uh, the couple of times I've seen it happen, or I have seen the court think that it may be happening. The court got to it before the party could even object. So, so it, it isn't something where I've actually, actually had to think, okay, I need to go up and say they're, they're, they're waving a, a religious bias flag here. Uh, the court's uh, I mean, I know I've had a couple of hearings uh, in Marshall where courts have gone out of their way to point out that I know, essentially, I know your jury consultant might have indicated this is a fertile ground to kind of keep seeding in the jury's mind uh, this theme. This is not going to happen in this courtroom during this trial. You, you can mention where a party is from in passing. If it's relevant to something, you can mention it. But but put down a very clear marker at the pretrial conference that I'm watching. And if you bring up that this witness is from X country and it's not relevant to something, uh, I'm going to call you down in front of the jury. Well, moving on to uh, more Western District of Texas, we had a, a rare order on a on a 101. Well, actually. <laughs> They're not getting not that rare anymore because we've actually got uh, two to go over. Um, uh, Judge Albright, and to provide a little context, prior to these orders, Judge Albright had uh, denied uh, 101 motions, I think 14 times, half, half of the time on procedural grounds without prejudice, saying bring it up later, and then the other half on, uh, on the merits. What we saw in the first order was at the pretrial conference, the judge granted a 101 motion and uh, uh, dismissed the case based on his grant of the 101 at the pretrial. Uh, and this was the, the first week of December that he granted that. 
He said that the claims were directed to an abstract idea under step one and under step two, that they didn't include an inventive concept. He also looked at were there disputes of material fact that precluded summary judgment and said, in that case, there were not. Now, again, that was the first time we've seen that. It was a couple of weeks before we got the order on it. But this order is a very, very useful one uh, to see how he uh, analyzes 101 issues. And this was in the USC uh, versus Facebook case. Well, Michael, I mean, you, you mentioned it, that I'd still say that it's rare, but you've got two. So how do these line up? Well, the second one uh, came out, uh, it's a little bit different, but the, the, um, the court granted a 12B6 motion. And let me, let me back up. The first case uh, was a summary judgment. The defendant didn't raise the 101 issue until summary judgment uh, two months before trial. The second case is different. The defendant in that case raised the 101 in a 12B6 motion at the beginning of the case. When Judge Albright ruled on that 12B6 after uh, the Markman hearing, uh, in fact, the, the uh, several months after the Markman hearing, uh, he said, okay, this motion should be granted because while it's very difficult to get a, a affirmative ruling under the federal circuit's jurisprudence under Alice, uh, the defendant got there in this case. Now, what's useful about this case uh, is that he goes through the federal circuit cases and he says it's very difficult to figure this out because I read the federal circuit's cases as con in contradicting each other as far as whether something is or is not patentable subject matter. But he went into a lot of detail on I'm, I'm going with these cases because I think they're closer to the situation here. Uh, and I, I believe that this is a situation where it's unpatentable subject matter. So he grants the 12B6 motion. Now, that's the good news. for and He grants the 12B6 motion and he dismisses the case. That's a kind of an unusual outcome, but remember this is a 12B6 motion. He cites some uh, a recent decision by Judge uh, Gilstrap that points out, this is not a summary judgment, it's a pleadings issue. And what, what Judge Albright decided was that the pleadings did not make clear that the claim was patentable subject matter. So he dismissed the case. And what you'd normally see in this case is a grant of the motion with leave to replete in a couple of weeks. He didn't do that. He simply dismissed the case. And again, we're kind of late in the case here. So the plaintiff is dismissed without prejudice. It could refile the case and replete and try to get around it. What we don't yet know is whether they're going to try to. So it's a 101 grant, but it's very different from the first one. It's in a different procedural context. It resulted in a different ruling uh, and we'll just have to see if this is actually a different substantive animal. So, so Michael, I mean, in a lot of courts, 12B and 12C motions uh, became the, the flavor of the day uh, for challenging 101 and were almost treated as dispositive motions. Is that what we're seeing happening in Texas or is this something different? Well, I think I, I would have thought that I frankly had thought that the three were pretty much interchangeable. And this order tells me that if I do it as a 12B6, I'm, I'm kind of building in a backdoor for the plaintiff to be able to replead 
Um, and maybe that's not what I want to do. So, so maybe now I may start agreeing with some of my co-counsel that say, I don't want to raise it as a 12B6. I want to raise it as a 12C. I know why it doesn't get filed that way in Marshall, because Judge Gilstrap has some different requirements on bringing it, bringing uh, 101 motions up before you get to the claim construction stage. He has uh, unpatentable subject matter uh, disclosure requirements. So a lot of defendants will deliberately wait until a little bit later in the in the case to bring it up. And now I kind of understand why that might be a, a better decision. Uh, when, you, when you get a 101 ruling, you don't want it to be, well, now the plaintiff can see if they can replete around this. You want it to be uh, their best shot and they either get there or they don't. Well, then we're beginning to see more, I guess, more procedural motions coming from Judge Albright, just kind of the timing of where the cases are stacking up. So you got this ruling in 12B6, you've got some interesting discovery motions that we're getting new information out of. We do. Um, Judge Albright has had some new procedures in recent months that allow more fulsome briefing. It's a letter briefing procedure, but you put in up to 500 words each side about a discovery fight. You then have a phone hearing with him, and then the, the parties get together and they draft an order reflecting what the judge's rulings were. Uh, and submit that for the for the court to review. The, the reason I, I was interested in this order in the Monterey case was for a couple of reasons. First of all, the plaintiff was asking for additional venue discovery. They were asking for more information on the products and more information on the employees and and more on the on on things that would make sense that you'd want to get into in the venue context. And Judge Albright denied that couple of things that are important about that. What we've all heard Judge Albright say in recent months when you get on the phone with him on a, on a venue fight is the plaintiff will ask for A, B, and C. And he will often tell them now, well, I can understand why you would want that, but looking at the recent Federal Circuit cases, they tell me that those facts couldn't support venue even if you got them. So I don't think you need discovery on it. So while I don't know exactly what the discovery requests were here, I don't think this subject matter is something that Judge Albright wouldn't allow discovery into. I think that probably this falls into the scope of the plaintiff was asking for detail or was asking for additional information that compared when you lay it up against recent Federal Circuit cases, that's not going to help you get over the hump. So those got denied. There was also a request for some uh, additional technical information uh, that he also denied. To me, this order is helpful because number one, it tells you that not all discovery in the venue context is going to be granted. And number two, it's an example of a pretty well-written order reflecting rulings that I'm going to be using as kind of a template after I have a hearing and we're arguing over what the uh, proposed order should look like. Well, the, the last piece uh, for today is the pre-trial conference. So I understand you spent a better part of a day at a pre-trial conference over in Waco. I'm I did. I did. In fact, I'm uh, speaking to you in a Waco hotel room right now. Uh, it, it was good being back in the courtroom with the exception of this time of the year. It's very cold in Judge Albright's courtroom. And fortunately, I remembered that from 30 years ago when I was an intern in that court in law school. So I brought a parka with me and wore it in the gallery, which is, uh, that, that's the Morgan Chu look. Um, 
wear a parka in the courtroom. But but I had a, a long day with Judge Albright, and uh, I thought I could uh, kind of do a, a Letterman presentation of the top five things that Judge Albright tells you at scheduling conferences that might help you when you're presenting a case in this court. Okay, well, why don't you kick off? Number five, Judge Albright on experts at trial. Judge Albright stopped ruling on motions for a few minutes to explain his practice on experts at trial. He told the lawyers that if there's an objection at trial that an expert is testifying outside their report, he expects that the examining lawyer's outline will have a note of where in the report the matter that's being testified to is contained. He said, if you've got that, that tends to kind of stop there being a second objection to it. Uh, but it also makes things go much more quickly. I know I've heard Judge Gilstrap say that's just an impossible objection to, to rule on without a lot of disruption to the process. Now, but, but there's a caveat to that. He said the problem is that on cross, the expert may have to get into some unexpected areas. So when you get to redirect, you may need to ask your experts some questions that weren't in their report. And he, and he said, I am more flexible at that stage of the examination. Um, that's very good to know. It's also very good advice and something I tell every lawyer I work with, annotate your outline with every paragraph so that when they say, judge, that's not in his report, you can say it's a paragraph 114 on page 47. I even have experts that will put that information in a footer on the bottom of the slide that they're testifying about, because I've told them I, I have to have that for every word that comes out of your mouth. I've got to be able to tell the judge. Well, it's useful to know that Judge Albright says that, too. Well, and it's also a good warning about uh, cross-examination uh, on an expert. Keep it tight. Don't let them, um, as uh, George Chandler used to say, back up the truck. That's it. That's it. You can. Um, I remember in trials with Judge Ward, you would see people go into something on cross and then try to complain on redirect. Oh, well, Judge, that's not in his report. Say, well, it wasn't, but you just crossed him on it. So now it's coming in. Um, number four, Judge Albright on motions and limiting. Two things on this. What he's told us previously is that most of his motions and limiting were just essentially almost everything's going to be granted initially and don't get excited. That just means don't go into it until you approach. If it's something where he's, he's, it's a tentative ruling. It's not the final say, unless he tells you it is. And he said, if it's, if it's like a car wreck case and the motion in limine is don't let him go into insurance coverage. Well, when I tell you that's not coming in, that's not going to come in. Uh, but on other things, it's generally just I'm trying to keep things from coming up until it's at trial and I have a chance to look at it. But the other thing he told us that was interesting is he said during trial, don't stand up and object and say that the opposing party is violating motion and limiting number 713. That was his number because he thinks we ever do it on motions and limiting. Don't stand up and say they're violating 713 because he said, I will not recognize the numbers of the motions and limine in trial. I promise you that. Instead, just say, uh, Your Honor, may we approach and go up and handle it at the bench. Well, that's useful to know because some judges have a different preference. So it's useful to know that Judge Albright isn't going to get mad at me because I stand up and say, Your Honor, may we approach. That, and that's, he would rather me do that than stand up and say, judge, this is a violation of limiting number 714. 
and that's that's incredibly good local knowledge. We tried one out here in California where the judge forbid anybody from approaching the bench, and the objection was the number. And exactly, there was a list at the bench, and the judge would you know do his conversion chart and tell you. The, the outcome so that's that's exactly right uh judges do it differently so that was very useful to know number three is witness disputes uh everything you you thought you knew uh but had forgotten about 30b6 uh deponents uh the issue that came up was a party was switching out who its corporate representative was going to be at trial and the other side was concerned that they were trying to get away from bad statements that the that the 30b6 des designees had made uh, during their depositions so judge albright stopped the parties and kind of explained here's here's how it's going to work that the you you put a person up that's just a person it's they work for the company and they can answer whatever questions now if they say something that's different from what a prior court representative said during trial, you can impeach them with a prior testimony, or you can approach me and ask to strike what they said because it's inconsistent with the prior testimony. So you've got a couple of options there. And, and uh, the party then said, oh, okay, well, that, well, that's helpful, but what about corporate representatives that they wouldn't answer questions in the 30B6 they objected based on some ground, and then they they show up and they start answering them at trial without us knowing what those answers were going to be. And he said, okay, if that happens, if a witness didn't answer the question in the deposition, setting aside an instruction not to answer during scope, dealing with scope, which is something different, then he wouldn't permit the witness to answer the question at trial. Okay, so that's that's three arrows that you've got in your quiver now if a party comes up with a representative who starts saying something that either wasn't answered in a 30B6 deposition or the, the, the deponent said something uh, inconsistent. So I thought that was, that was useful uh, instruction. Number two is the pretrial order. This usually doesn't come up in the Eastern District but, uh, with Judge Gilstrap because you've got tight time limits at trial, but, but I've, I have seen the question asked before. The defendant objected that the plaintiff had said that in our rebuttal case, that's not going to be limited to invalidity. We might go into uh, infringement and damages as well. And the defendant wanted Judge Albright to say, you can't do that. Your rebuttal case is limited to invalidity. And Judge Albright had an answer for this. He said, the plaintiff's rebuttal case is everything. It's not limited to invalidity. I've talked to lots of judges and without exception, they all say they do it this way. The plaintiff can go into anything uh, in their rebuttal case. And the defendant said, well, then can I get a rebuttal at least on invalidity after the plaintiff's rebuttal? And Judge Albright said, no, but his eyes got a little bigger. So uh, two things I, I, I took from that. Number one, this doesn't come up in Marshall for a couple of reasons. Number one, you just haven't got time to restart infringement and damages in your rebuttal case as a plaintiff. Number two, because the only people that would be testifying would be experts anyway, and everything was in their report, you can't claim something was surprise. You already had an opportunity to bring it up. So you dump, you back the dump truck up, 
on your case in chief. You don't leave things for rebuttal. Now, yes, if something unexpected came up, you could do it, but generally you've got so little time, it just doesn't come up. Um, where you don't really have a hard stop on your time, uh, I can see where that would be a little bit more uh, of an issue. And again, I'll, Judge Albright didn't say, if you ask me during trial, I mean, I, I'll bet you if that defendant comes up during trial and says, okay, they put on some stuff on invalidity, we'd like to have our expert get back up and respond to a couple of things. If it's going to be 10 or 15 minutes, they probably are going to get leave for it. But anyway, just, a, just an indication, here's what Judge Albright's rule is on that. And um, uh, here's probably how you, you can address that at trial. That's, that is a great point. That's, there's a big difference between asking for, can I have a rebuttal case? And can I have 10 minutes to make two points? Right, right. We rarely run into a situation where people are actually asking for more time on the back end. Uh, but if, but I've seen, I, I haven't seen anybody ask for it and not get it. If you need it to wrap things up, to make sure that the jury has everything that they need, I think, I think you'll get some lenience from a lot of judges. And uh, just because Judge Albright didn't bring that up yesterday doesn't mean that he won't do it if he's asked at trial. And the last thing you might hear Judge Albright say is that he has the best job in the world. He says that at a lot of conferences, and it's simply because um, Judge Albright is one of those judges that likes lawyers. He enjoyed doing this as a lawyer, and there's nothing he likes better than to sit there with a smile on his face as good lawyers are going after it in a patent case. He really, really appreciates the, uh, uh, the expertise and the art of what happens in his courtroom. Uh, and he, he doesn't hesitate to tell us about that every day. Um, so that, that's something that, that I think you'll hear at most pretrial conferences with him in a patent case. He just really likes, likes the job of helping shepherd these things through. Well, and as, as those that have practiced nationally know, there are a lot of federal judges that feel the exact opposite. So, um, it's nice to be loved at least in one place. Yes, exactly. Wonderful. Well, Michael, once again, thank you. Um, enjoy your, your time in Waco and your trial next week. We'll, we'll have some fun with it. Have a good Take week. Care.